Hello, I'm Brett Hutchins from Monash University in Nam, Australia. Nam being the name for the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation for thousands of years, which we now know as Melbourne, and a place where sovereignty was never granted nor ceded by First Nations peoples. And we're back again for episode 41 of the Media Sport podcast series. We're fortunate to be joined for this conversation by Jessica Murphy from the Department of Kinesiology and Sports Management at Texas A&M University in the United States. Jessica's research and teaching examines the effects of climate change on sport, including the social and legal implications of extreme weather and climate risks, and the environmental injustices faced by historically marginalised groups. Her work can be found in journals such as Case Studies in Sports Management and the Journal of Legal Aspects of Sports, as well as in major edited collections, including a very recent collection called Sports Stadiums and Environmental Justice and the Business of the FIFA World Cup, which seems remarkably timely given it is literally happening in Qatar as we record this episode. A really interesting feature of Jessica's research is its applications and impacts. Her work has informed organisations like the Global Youth Network Summit on Sports for Climate Action, Texas A&M Athletics, Climate Week NYC, the Green Sports Alliance and Ocean Conservancy. We'll touch on this impact during our chat. Jessica, thanks for joining us for the Media Sport Podcast Series. Hi, Brad. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we'll start at a recent point, but obviously a major point in your career and learning, uh, which is the completion of your PhD in 2021. <laughs> and you examined the impacts or the attitudes, sorry, of Major League Baseball fans in the US towards climate change and their willingness to adapt. The obvious question is, are they adapting? And perhaps more usefully, what did you discover and find? That's a great place to start, I think, simply because the dissertation is such an undertaking. And sure, the literature can sort of shine a light on where I expected to go, but the outcomes of this study were eye-opening for me in a lot of unexpected ways. So I took some precursors to the formation of climate change risk perceptions. And for this study, I used skepticism, generalized emotions, and personal experiences with extreme weather, all as antecedents to climate change risk perceptions, just generally in a person's life. The general climate change risk perceptions would then serve as a predictor to those perceptions of risk that were specific to the sport. And in this case, it's Major League Baseball, because in the United States, MLB has such a large footprint. I mean, it extends beyond the United States with the team in Canada. So a large geographic footprint. It also has a large temporal footprint. So the season extends over a good portion of the calendar year, which means it has this unique vulnerability to climate just based on its exposure to the elements alone. And the elements being completely different where the Seattle Mariners exposure to climate will look different than the Miami Marlins on opposite sides of the country. So I wanted to know where Major League Baseball fans sat on this, how their risk perceptions came to be, and if we can use perceptions of risk, which we associate with fear, uncertainty, doubt, if that can be a motivator for climate action. And in this study, I measured it as willingness to adapt. So not so much what did they do, but what were they willing to do given how they felt 
about Major League Baseball's climate change risks, which is really interesting because this is a topic that's highly debated in the United States. Um, It has been historically. It falls on a lot of religious, political, other ideological lines that sort of go head to head with the science. But sport has this lifeline that can extend through politics, religion, and science. It's something that people gather around and care about. If you wear a logo or certain colors on your shirt or your hat, it's really this tie that binds people together. And I wanted to capitalize on that. So ultimately what I found is that fans had differing influences on their risk perceptions based on different levels of their identification with Major League Baseball. So the fans that were more highly identified with the sport were more influenced by their generalized emotions, something that felt negative or sad, angry, a sense of loss or grief. Fans that were a bit more diehard had more negative emotions. Fans that were a bit more casual, laissez-faire, fair-weather fans, they tended to be more skeptical. And that's where the difference lied. Both groups of fans had very similar feelings related to their experiences with extreme weather, which I expected. And that's rooted heavily in the literature. If the basement of your home floods out or the roof of your home blows off, you have this connection to something that we can immediately tie to climate. That is a huge driver on how risk perceptions are formed. The interesting thing, though, that I found across all fans is that their perceptions of risk generally, their perceptions of risk specific to the sport were the same, regardless of their identification with the sport. They felt if climate change was something that was going to negatively affect their lives, they felt that in the same way that it would negatively affect the sport that they identify as a fan with, regardless of the amount of fandom. And similarly, both groups of fans were willing to adapt their behavior. So travel by plane less frequently, make more climate conscious decisions in what they're willing to do, use and pay for. Really, the only differences in the fans were those more psychological factors in skepticism and emotions, which was really cool. That was the the big takeaway. Oh, that's interesting work, and it recalls the um, cover of Sports Illustrated, I think, in two thousand and seven, with the the image of the Miami Marlins baseballer with water water up to his sort of hips from memory. Yeah. yeah. You've obviously been doing a lot of concurrent work because I first came across your research in a piece you wrote for the Conversation with Natasha Brissom about preventable heat-related illnesses and deaths, young athletes, and climate injustice. I live in a a country like parts of the United States, has very high temperatures. We obviously have issues with bushfires and floods and a number of other extreme weather events. Can you explain what you were doing in that piece and and really what struck me is the genuinely life and death problem you were writing about? Yeah, Absolutely. Writing about climate and extreme weather, I say this all the time, especially to students, it's difficult to write about because at the end, there are lives that are changing entirely due to this matter. I mean, you mentioned bushfires. Look how much destruction and damage comes from those and they're just getting more and more severe. That's an extreme. There are 
gradual changes in climate that are doing similar amounts of destruction. So our piece for the conversation really was an introductory sort of door opening to the prevalence of environmental injustices in sport at the high school level. So, you know, we're looking at kids 13, 14 years old to 17, 18 years old. And in discussing what environmental injustice is, we can see how that plays out in sport opportunity in the United States at one of the most vulnerable levels. You know, at a level in the primary school system where opportunity to compete in sport is really still just about play. It's about physical activity, health, and well-being. But at the same time, we're losing life because of inadequate care and consideration and inadequate approaches to the science behind climate, and in this case, extreme heat. So in that piece, we are discussing how extreme heat over time plays out for kids who want to play sports. And unfortunately, this has led to many lawsuits where instances of heat illness, which can span a spectrum from something as minor as a sunburn, which we know sunburns can elevate to very harmful health outcomes over time. But on a micro level, something as small as a sunburn to as extreme as a heat stroke, which can result in death. All of those instances from both ends of that spectrum and every point in between, uh, all of those are entirely preventable. Yet they continue to happen when high schoolers compete in sports for their school. So not even at the most elite levels, they're not making money off of this. They're just wanting an opportunity to play, but we're seeing more and more lawsuits that are alleging wrongful death, alleging negligence, pointing the legal blame at coaches, administrators, teachers, by families who are just trying to make sense of loss Whether or not their child survives, there is an amount of loss in each of these scenarios. Most commonly, this issue is discussed in American football, but not exclusively. We're seeing rising instances of heat illness in athletes in soccer, track and field and cross country, cheerleading, basketball. And basketball is an interesting one because more often than not, it's played indoors. So... It's a really problematic issue that is hard to discuss. It's hard to talk about. It's even harder to wrap our minds around it, knowing that these are issues that don't have to happen. It's not integral to the sport where a lot of traumatic injuries are part of the game. You can sort of expect to take a hard hit in football, rugby, and other sports. But when you sign up to play soccer, you sign up to play basketball, you're not signing up for heat illness. And the injustice piece comes in because those issues face certain historically marginalized groups over others. And that comes down to a lot of social factors, but also managerial decision making 
and opportunity. And we can lump revenue or finances and money tax brackets into that. The availability for things to safeguard public health, like medical doctors, athletic trainers, at least in the United States, the public school system, access to those things are going to favor the areas and the neighborhoods where that type of staff can be financially supported. So it's a really messy, mangled situation that for decades, has been returning like year after year, more and more instances of heat-related illness in sports at the high school level. Yeah, and it sort of leads on to a question I have around, uh, you You recently attended a major international conference, the 2022 Sport Positive Summit at Wembley mm-hmm. Stadium in, in London, which is obviously an iconic venue for people who yes. enjoy and watch sport. It's very large. Really importantly, you presented on, and I think picking up on that piece about differential impacts on particular populations, you know, you presented on intersectional environmentalism and climate justice, and you did so with an Olympic champion and world champion sailor, Alexander Rickham, a very impressive person in her own right. (laughs) Now, what is intersectional environmentalism? And why does it matter? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. um, Because I always challenge people to explore how their connection to the environment comes to be. A lot of the times, especially in the sport industry, and then especially in sport related fields that are so closely connected to a university like my current setting at Texas A&M where you've got higher ed and you've got intercollegiate athletics operating in the same sphere we can end up siloing things into separate buckets and sometimes that's done with the intention of efficiency right i cannot run the dining services the residential halls be a professor coach the teams drive the bus for my campus all in the same day so there are departments and that's just a you know a very broad abstract example but there are departments in businesses on campuses that are very highly specialized to do specific work The intersectional nature of environmentalism challenges us to think about where those separate buckets overlap. So when I ask people about what their connection is to the natural environment, like what brings you the sense of peace that you feel when you go on walks, what is that rooted in? That really gets people to start to think about how those relationships come to be. And those relationships are going to be very individualized. Well, if we're working in a firm full of individuals who have a very individualized connection to nature, then we've got a massive heat map almost of what it looks like to touch all of the intersections if we were to overlap the connections that everybody has. So for me, Um, I grew up in a family that really prioritized connection to the outdoors. That has gone on for generations. So I was born into a family that loves to hike and camp. We've always had animals as pets. Um, We've got several family members who've worked across the animal industry, the veterinary industry. So very big into conservation. And I can go back to my great-great-grandparents and their connection to the beach and fishing as a career and farming as a career. 
and what that looks like for me now in almost 2023 is I protected those things in my life as a child. I would come home from primary school with a backpack full of rocks and leaves that I found that day. And it's always been something very important to me. As a Girl Scout, it was important to me. As a sports player, it was important to me. I'm a scuba diver. All of these things that make me who I am are my intersections. At the same time, I am an able-bodied educated Black American woman. And these are other areas of my intersections. So in intersectional environmentalism, we need to take those core components of who a person is related to the natural environment and protect those and utilize them. So my intersections will allow me to bring a certain skill set to my work my collaborations with others than a friend of mine or a stranger or somebody that I'm hoping to network with. And all of those pieces can work together. The challenging part is situating where diversity, equity, and inclusion fits into an organization. That is also an area that thankfully due to recent momentum is becoming more normal to talk about and more normal to see in organizations through the hiring process and then you know where time and space is dedicated. But at the same time, it's starting to become its own bucket where there might be a diversity, equity, and inclusion office or a manager or a component or a job function of someone else's job. But that is separating out the work that should be very integral to everything else. Going back to the college campus example, where perhaps the Office of Sustainability has a building, the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has a building. Well, now the individuals who work in those spaces, they go to their separate buildings, they get their work done, they go home at the end of the day, and they do it all again tomorrow. When really, there should be bridges and tunnels and overlays between those buildings as they work together Because in human beings' lives, those are elements that work together, too. So our presentation at Sport Positive really uh, challenged the audience to think about what those intersections might be, how we can use everybody to our collective advantage for cooperative efforts to protect the environment. And I mean, I think it comes through in the way you just spoke, but there's a really translational way you go about your research trying to create impact for organisation on the back of scholarly rigour, of course. It might be an extension of your previous answer, but why is that so important in your mind? Yeah, it's personally important because it's how I got here. The elements that make me who I am drive the work that I do every day, which means the elements that make you who you are probably drive the work that you're doing too, Um, or anyone who's listening or anybody who's alive and doing things. So if we are to take a cooperative effort for global good, then the things that make me me and the things that make you you need to work together because we need that kind of cooperation to advance aggressive climate agendas, to advance aggressive social agendas where segmenting and siloing people based on type, culture, color, belief 
is only going to drive more wedges. We often hear that sport can be this powerful tool to inspire or promote change. And while that's true, there are so many differences between groups of people, geographical differences, age differences, things that are very basic and non-controversial that make that work difficult. There are a lot of things working against us. So we need to do everything we can to work together. And I think the thing about research that's really powerful, the thing about science is that you can start to peel back some of those layers that we put on that emphasize the differences. Scholarship focuses on differences. You know, we control for things or we're looking to isolate certain variables. But the goal is not to isolate things for the sake of isolation. It's to isolate things so we know what the mechanism is or what the tool is for positive change, I would hope, in all cases. And sport is no exception to that, in my mind. You've just come off a, a, a very, very long car trip of 17 hours. Jessica's very mobile <laughs> in, in our, our chat before we hit record. And you're also about to visit Australia, which I'm really happy to hear, which yes. again, you'll discover a, a very long plane flight. What are you doing here? And, you know, as I say, what, what brings you to uh, the, the Southern Hemisphere? Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm making my first trip to Australia to present at SMAN, Sport Management Association of Australia and New Zealand. And this is a, a dream trip because as a diver, I've had Australia on my bucket list forever. And to see that I've been able to craft a body of work and a career that marries the things that make me who I am as a former athlete and an environmental person that I've been able to blend those two things together in a way that's being recognized by the industry and by the academy and affording me opportunities to share that knowledge has been so meaningful already. And I haven't even stepped foot on the plane yet. So I'm really excited because this is allowing me to extend my global reach and my own world views. So, so much of the work that I'm doing is rooted in the sportscapes that I have experienced. So as I gain experience, I'll be able to alter my voice and my scholarship scope to include more perspectives, more people. And that's really important to me because it's easy to get locked up in your like one little place bubble. So I'm so excited to learn more from a cultural standpoint, to meet as many people as I possibly can and learn from them while I'm there, share some knowledge and insights. I know there are several students that I'm meeting with. So to just gain that kind of exposure and insight, I know I'm going to walk away with a notebook full of more perspectives and thoughts and ideas. But at the same time, I will have walked away having shared this important work to an entirely new audience too. For those who won't be at the conference, which actually, if I look at my listening data, given a lot of people aren't actually in Australia or New Zealand, um, <laughs> could you give us a taste? You know, is it possible to give us a taste for what you'll be presenting on? 
Sure, I'll speak to one because it'll it'll be kind of a teaser, and it's a forthcoming paper with my co-presenter, Dr. Maddie Orr, who I know has been on this podcast. So a good little full circle moment with this. She and I are doing a lightning talk, so it'll be really fast, digestible information on the role that rescheduling can play as a climate adaptation strategy. So um, I wanted to use this one as an example because it really brings together all the different sides of my work, the injustice side, the extreme weather side, communicating climate change. She and I have a forthcoming paper that discusses this exact matter. The issue, though, is with inertia. So we, as people, can expect sport to operate on a schedule or on a calendar. And socially, we've gotten very used to that. Sports have seasons and major sport events happen around the same time every year or every four years. In the United States, college football game days are on Saturdays. Professional football games are on Sundays. The Australian Open happens in January, which makes sense given the differences between hemispheres. We can almost adjust our entire calendar, not based on month or day, but based on when we can expect sport to happen. However, this is a status quo inertia. This schedule has been in motion for so long that it's just become normal. That when there's some sort of force that adjusts that normalcy, it throws everything off. We saw that happen with the COVID-19 pandemic, where everything sort of came to a screeching halt. And the status quo nature of sport, how we know it, what we can expect from it, changed entirely. I mean, we saw an Olympic Games move calendar years which is throwing off this normal every four-year thing that we can expect. But Maddie Orr and I are suggesting that we can get a little bit comfortable with uncomfortable scheduling as a way to adapt to climate. We're seeing that now with the Men's World Cup happening at a time of year when it typically doesn't as a way to combat the extreme heat. And this doesn't have to exist solely at the major sport levels. I gave you like two of the most highest examples, but it's not exclusive to that. And these changes can allow for gender equity in sport when things are timed. It can allow for accommodating different needs, making the best use of sport facilities, reducing the amounts of travel and the distance for travel for all people, athletes, fans, we can shift things around a little bit, just like what we saw with the pandemic where emissions were reduced, the the skies kind of cleared up some because people weren't traveling for sports. People weren't traveling for anything. So we're really excited to share how overcoming inertia can lead to some adaptive outcomes for climate and sport. And a question I ask of a lot of my interviewees for for this series, could you recommend us a a book that you think all our listeners should at least look at and preferably read cover to cover? Ooh, it's hard to pick one, but how about The Future Earth by Eric Holthaus? Firstly, the cover is beautiful. So if you're browsing a bookstore, it will jump off the shelf. 
it's a really thought provoking piece on what our world will look like in the coming decades. And Eric writes this in a beautiful way where you understand the science. You don't need to be a chemist or a climatologist to get the science. We understand where we are in terms of the severity of climate change and humans' role in that. We totally get that. We understand how weather works on a day-to-day basis in a very small level over the course of someone's life. But Eric writes about what the future is going to look like over the next several decades. The thing for me that this book really did was it allowed me to still feel hopeful um, and optimistic given the dire state of the environment and society. Um, And that's something that's really important because I know I spoke about how this work can be really hard and mentally exhausting. And it's hard to show up to work every day knowing that we're having to fight against our current systems and our current climate. And with every year, it seems like we're not making the progress that we need. And with that comes a lot of anxiety and gloom and stress and overwhelm, which can be really hard to overcome. But this book is written in a way that is very hopeful, very optimistic in a pragmatic and realistic way. It's a great recommendation. It's also a very nice note to finish on, I might add. I just, I, <laughs> Good. I just want to say thank you for your generosity in sharing your insights with us. I wish you a very safe trip to and from Australia and hope you have a great time while you're here. And just in close, I also want to offer a shout out to Dr. Simon Troon, who continues to play a really important role in preparing and producing the series uh, and as well as on the project attached to it. Until next time, everyone, 